Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 30 Homeward Bound Sunday, June 5th. We were in latitude 19 degrees 29 minutes south and longitude 118 degrees 01 minutes west. Having made 1200 miles in seven days, very nearly upon a taut bowen. Our good ship was getting to be herself again, and had increased her rate of sailing more than one-third since leaving San Diego. The crew ceased complaining of her, and the officers hove the log every two hours with evident satisfaction. This was glorious sailing, a steady breeze, the light trade winds clouds over our head, the incomparable temperature of the Pacific, neither hot nor cold, a clear sun every day, and clear moon and stars every night, and new constellations rising in the south, where the familiar ones sinking in the north, as we went on our course, stemming nightly toward the pole. Already we had sunk the North Star and Great Bear, while the Southern Cross appeared well above the southern horizon, and all hands looked out sharp to the southern for the Magellan clouds, which, each succeeding night, we expected to make. The next time we see the North Star, said one, we shall be standing to the northward, the other side of the horn. This was true enough, and no doubt it would be a welcome sight, for sailors say that in coming home from round Cape Horn, or the Cape of Good Hope, the North Star is the first land you make. These trades were the same that in passage out in the Pilgrim lasted nearly all the way from Juan Fernandez to the line, blowing steadily on our starboard quarter for three weeks, without our starting a brace, or even brailing down the skysails. Though we had now the same wind, and were in the same latitude with the Pilgrim on her passage out, yet we were nearly twelve hundred miles to the westward of her course, for the captain, depending upon the strong southwest winds which prevail in high southern latitudes during the winter months, took the full advantage of the trades, and stood well to the westward, so far that we passed within about two hundred miles of Ducey's Island. It was this weather and sailing that brought to my mind a little incident that occurred on board the Pilgrim, while we were in the same latitude. We were going along at a great rate, dead before the wind, with studding souls out on both sides, alone and aloft, on a dark night, just after midnight, and everything as still as the grave, except the washing of the water by the vessel's side. For, being before the wind, with a smooth sea, the little brig covered with canvas was doing great business with very little noise. The other watch was below, and all our watch, except myself and the man at the wheel, were asleep under the lee of the boat. The second mate, who came out before the mast, and was always very thick with me, had been holding a yarn with me, and had just gone aft to his place in the quarter-deck, and I had resumed my usual walk to and from the windless end, when suddenly we heard a loud scream coming from ahead, apparently from directly under the bows. The darkness and complete stillness of the night and the solitude of the ocean gave to the sound a dreadful 
an almost supernatural effect. I stood perfectly still, and my heart beat quick. The sound woke up the rest of the watch, who stood looking at one another. "'What in the name of God is that?' said the second mate, coming slowly forward. The first thought I had was that it might be a boat with the crew of some wrecked vessel, or perhaps the boat of some well-ship, out overnight, and we had run it down in the darkness. This started us, and we ran forward and looked over the bows and over the sides to leeward, but nothing was to be seen or heard. What was to be done? Heave the ship aback and call the captain? Just at this moment, in crossing the forecastle, one of the men saw a light below, and looking down a scuttle, saw the watch all out of their berths, and a foul of one poor fellow dragging him out of his berth and shaking him to wake him out of a nightmare. They had been waked out of their sleep, and as much alarmed at the scream as we were, and were hesitating whether to come on deck, when the second sound, proceeding directly from one of the berths, revealed the cause of the alarm. The fellow got a good shaking for the trouble he had given, and we could well laugh, for our minds were not a little relieved by its ridiculous termination. We were now close upon the southern tropical line, and, with so fine a breeze, were daily leaving the sun behind us and drawing nearer to Cape Horn, for which it behooved us to make every preparation. Our rigging was overhauled and mended, or changed for new, where it was necessary. New and strong bobstays fitted in the place of the chain ones, which were worn out. The spritsail yard and martingale guys and back rope set well taut. Brand new fore and main braces rove. Top-gallant sheets and wheel ropes, made of green hide, laid up in the form of rope, were stretched and fitted. And new topsail clue lines, etc., rove. New foretopmast backstays fitted, and other preparations made in good season, that the ropes might have time to stretch and become limber before we got into cold weather. Sunday, June twelfth, latitude twenty six degrees four minutes south, longitude one hundred and sixteen degrees thirty one minutes west. We had now lost the regular trades and had the winds variable, principally from the westward, and kept on in a southerly course, sailing very nearly upon the meridian, and at the end of the week, Sunday, june nineteenth, we were in latitude thirty four degrees fifteen minutes south and longitude 116 degrees, 38 minutes west. Chapter 31 Bad Prospects There began now to be a decided change in the appearance of things. The days became shorter and shorter, the sun running lower in its course each day, and giving less and less heat, and the nights so cold as to prevent our sleeping on deck. The Magellan clouds in sight of a clear, moonless night, the skies looking cold and angry, and, at times, a long, heavy, ugly sea, setting in from the southern, told us what we were coming to. Still, however, we had a fine, strong breeze, and kept on our way under as much sail as our ship would bear. Toward the middle of the week, the wind hauled to the southward, which brought us upon a top bowline made the ship meet, nearly head-on, the heavy swell which rolled from that quarter, 
and there was something not at all encouraging in the manner in which she met it. Being still so deep and heavy, she wanted the buoyancy which should have carried her over the seas, and she dropped heavily into them, the water washing over the decks, and every now and then, when an unusually large sea met her fairly upon the bows, she struck it with a sound as dead and heavy as that with which a sledgehammer falls upon the pile, and took the whole of it upon the forecastle, and, rising, carried it aft in the scuppers, washing the rigging off the pins, and carrying along with it everything which was loose on deck. She had been acting this way all of our forenoon watch below, as we could tell by the washing of the water over our heads, and the heavy breaking of the seas against her bows, only the thickness of a plank from our heads, as we lay in our berths, which were directly against the bows. At eight bells the watch was called, and we came on deck, one hand going aft to take the wheel, and another going to the galley to get the grub for dinner. I stood on the forecastle, looking at the seas, which were rolling high as far as the eye could reach, their tops white with foam, and the body of them a deep indigo blue, reflecting the bright rays of the sun. Our ship rose slowly over a few of the largest of them, until one immense fellow came rolling on, threatening to cover her, and which I was sailor enough to know by the feeling of her under my feet, she would not rise over. I sprang upon the night-heads, and, seizing hold of the forestay, drew myself up upon it. My feet were just off the stanchion when the bow struck fairly into the middle of the sea, and it washed the ship fore and aft, burying her in the water. As soon as she rose out of it, I looked aft and everything fore to the mainmast, except the long-boat, which was griped and double-lashed down to the ring-bolts, was swept off clear. The galley, the pigsty, the hen-coop, and a large sheep-pen which had been built upon the forehatch were all gone in the twinkling of an eye, leaving the deck as clean as a chin new-reaped, and not a stick left to show where anything had stood. In the scuppers lay the galley, bottom up, and a few boards floating about, the wreck of the sheep-pen, and half a dozen miserable sheep floating among them, wet through and not a little frightened at the sudden change that had come upon them. As soon as the sea had washed by, all hands sprang up out of the forecastle to see what had become of the ship, and in a few moments the cook and old Bill crawled out from under the galley, where they had been lying in the water, nearly smothered, with the galley over them. Fortunately, it rested against the bulwarks, or it would have broken some of their bones. When the water ran off, we picked the sheep up and put them in the longboat, got the galley back in its place, and set things a little to rights. But, had not our ship had uncommonly high bulwarks and rail, everything must have been washed overboard, not excepting old Bill and the cook. Bill had been standing at the galley door, with the kid of beef in his hand for the forecastle mess, when away he went, kid, beef, and all. He held on to the kid to the last, like a good fellow, but the beef was gone, and when the water had run off we saw it lying, high and dry, like a rock at low tide. Nothing could hurt that. We took the loss of our beef very easily, consoling ourselves with the recollection that the cabin had more to lose than we, 
and chuckled not a little at seeing the remains of the chicken pie and pancakes floating in the scuppers. "'This will never do,' was what some said, and everyone felt. Here we were, not within a thousand miles of the latitude of Cape Horn, and our decks swept by a sea, not one half so high as we must expect to find there. Some blamed the captain for loading his ship so deep when he knew what he must expect, while others said that the wind was always southwest off the Cape in the winter, and that, running before it, we should not mind the seas so much. When we got down to the forecastle, old Bill, who was somewhat of a croaker, having met with a great many accidents at sea, said that, if that was the way she was going to act, we might as well make our wills and balance the books at once and put on a clean shirt. Vast there, you bloody old owl. You're always hanging out blue lights. You're frightened by the ducking you got in the scuppers and can't take a joke. What's the use of being always on the lookout for Davy Jones? Stand by, says another. And we'll get an afternoon watch below by this scrape. But in this they were disappointed, for at two bells all hands were called and set to work, getting lashings upon everything on deck, and the captain talked of sending down the top-gallant masts. But as the sea went down toward night, and the wind hauled a beam, we left them standing, and set the studding sails. The next day all hands were turned to upon unbending the old sails and getting up the new ones, for a ship, unlike people on shore, puts on her best suit in bad weather. The old sails were sent down, and three new topsails, and new fore and main courses, jib, and fore topmast staysail, which were made on the coast and had never been used, were bent, with a complete set of new earrings, robants, and reef points, and reef tackles were rove to the courses, and spilling lines to the topsails. These, with new braces and clue lines fore and aft, gave us a good suit of running rigging. The wind continued westerly, and the weather and sea less rough since the day on which we shipped the heavy sea, and we were making great progress under studding sails, with our light sails all set, keeping a little to the eastward of south. For the captain, depending upon westerly winds off the cape, had kept so far to the westward that, though we were within about five hundred miles of the latitude of Cape Horn, we were nearly seventeen hundred miles to the westward of it. Through the rest of the week we continued on with a fair wind, gradually, as we got more to the southward, keeping a more easterly course, and bringing the wind on our larboard quarter, until Sunday, June 26, when, having a fine clear day, the captain got a lunar observation as well as his meridian altitude, which made us in latitude 47 degrees 50 minutes south, Longitude 113 degrees, 49 minutes west. Cape Horn bearing, according to my calculations, east-south-east, one-half east, and distant 1,800 miles. Monday, June 27th. During the first part of this day, the wind continued fair, and as we were going before it, it did not feel very cold, so that we kept at work on deck in our common clothes and round jackets. Our watch had an afternoon watch below for the first time since leaving San Diego, and having inquired of the third mate what the latitude was at noon, and made our usual guesses as to the time she would need to be up with the horn, we turned in for a nap. We were sleeping away, at the rate of knots, when three knocks on the scuttle and, 
All hands ahoy! Started us from our berths. What could be the matter? It did not appear to be blowing hard, and looking up through the scuttle, we could see that it was clear day overhead. Yet the watch were taking in sail. We thought there must be a sail in sight, and that we were about to heave to and speak to her, and were just congratulating ourselves upon it, for we had seen neither sail nor land since we left port, when we heard the mate's voice on deck. He turned in all standing, and was always on deck the moment he was called, singing out to the men who were taking in the studding soles, and asking where his watch were. We did not wait for a second call, but tumbled up the ladder, and there, on the starboard bow, was a bank of mist, covering sea and sky, and driving directly for us. I had seen the same before in my passage round in the Pilgrim, and knew what it meant, and there was no time to be lost. We had nothing on but thin clothes, yet there was not a moment to spare, and at it we went. The boys of the other watch were in the tops, taking in the top-gallant studding soles and the lower and topmost studding soles were coming down by the run. It was nothing but haul down and clue up, until we got all the studding soles in, and the royals, flying jib, and mizzen top-gallant sails furled, and the ship kept off a little to take the squall. The fore and main top-gallant sails were still on her, for the old man did not mean to be frightened in broad daylight and was determined to carry a sail till the last minute. We all stood waiting for its coming, when the first blast showed us that it was not to be trifled with. Rain, sleet, snow, and wind enough to take our breath from us, and make the toughest turn us back to windward. The ship lay nearly over upon her beam ends. The spars and rigging snapped and cracked, and her top-gallant masts bent like whip-sticks. "'Clue up the fore and main top-gallant sails!' shouted the captain, and all hands sprang into the clue-lines. The decks were standing nearly at an angle of forty-five degrees, and the ship going like a mad steed through the water, the whole forward part of her in a smother of foam. The halyards were let go, and the yard clued down, and the sheet started, and in a few minutes the sails smothered and kept in by clue-lines and bunt-lines. "'Furlum, sir?' asked the mate. "'Let go the topsail halyards, fore and aft!' shouted the captain in answer, at the top of his voice. Down came the topsail yards, the reef tackles were manned and hauled out, and we climbed up to windward, and sprang into the weather-rigging. The violence of the wind and the hail and sleet, driving nearly horizontally across the ocean, seemed actually to pin us down to the rigging. It was hard work making head against them. One after another we got out upon the yards, and here we had work to do, for our new sails had hardly been bent long enough to get the stiffness out of them, and the new earrings and reef points, stiffened with the sleet, knotted like pieces of iron wire. Having only our round jackets and straw hats on, we were soon wet through, and it was every moment growing colder. Our hands were soon numbed, which, added to the stiffness of everything else, kept us a good while on the yard. After we had got the sail hauled upon the yard, we had to wait a long time for the weather earring to be passed, 
but there was no fault to be found, for French John was at the earing, and a better sailor never laid out a yard. So we leaned over the yard and beat our hands upon the sail to keep them from freezing. At length the word came, "'Haul out to Lord!' and we seized the reef points and hauled the band taut for the lee earing. "'Taut band, not away!' and we got the first reef fast and were just going to lay down when— Two reefs! Two reefs! shouted the mate, and we had a second reef to take, in the same way. When this was fast, we went down on deck, manned the halyards to leeward, nearly up to our knees in water, set the topsail, and then laid aloft on the main topsail yard, and reefed that sail in the same manner, for, as I have before stated, we were a good deal reduced in numbers and to make it worse the carpenter only two days before had cut his leg with an axe so that he could not go aloft this weakened us so that we could not well manage more than one topsail at a time in such weather as this and of course each man's labor was doubled from the main topsail yard we went upon the main yard and took a reef in the mainsail no sooner had we got on deck than lay aloft there and close reef mizzen topsail this called me, and being nearest to the rigging, I got first aloft and out to the weather earing. English Ben was up just after me, and took the lee earing, and the rest of our gang were soon on the yard, and began to fist the cell, when the mate considerately sent up the cook and steward to help us. I could now account for the long time it took to pass the other earings. For, to do my best, with a strong hand to help me at the dog's ear, I could not get it past until I heard them beginning to complain in the bunt. One reef after another we took in, until the sail was close reefed, when we went down and hoisted away at the halyards. In the meantime the jib had been furled and the staysail set, and the ship under her still hanging in the buntlands and sliding and jerking as though they would like to take the mass out of her. We gave a look aloft and knew that our work was not done yet, and, sure enough, no sooner did the mate see that we were on deck than, Lay aloft there, four of you, and furl the top-gallant sails! This called me again, and two of us went aloft up the fore-rigging, and two more up the main, upon the top-gallant yards. The shrouds were now iced over, the sleet having formed a crust round all the standing rigging, and on the weather side of the mass and yards. When we got upon the yard, my hands were so numb that I could not have cast off the knots at the gasket if it were to save my life. We both lay over the yard for a few seconds, beating our hands upon the cell, until we started the blood into our fingers' ends, and at the next moment our hands were in a burning heat. My companion on the yard was a lad, the boy, George Somerby, who came out in the ship a weak, puny boy from one of the Boston schools, no larger than a spritsail sheet knot, nor heavier than a paper of lamp-black, and not strong enough to haul a shad off a gridiron, but who was now as long as a spare topmast, strong enough to knock down an ox, and hardy enough to eat him. We fisted the sail together, and after six or eight minutes of hard hauling and pulling and beating down the sail, which was about as stiff as a sheet iron, we managed to get it furled, and snugly furled it must be, 
for we knew the mate well enough to be certain that if it got adrift again, we should be called up from our watch below at any hour of the night to furl it. I had been on lookout for a chance to jump below and clap on a thick jacket and sou'wester, but when we got on deck we found that eight bells had been struck, and the other watch gone below, so that there were two hours of dog watch for us, and a plenty of work to do. It had now set in for a steady gale from the southwest, but we were not yet far enough to the southward to make a fair wind of it, for we must give Terra del Fuego a wide berth. The decks were covered with snow, and there was a constant driving of sleet. In fact, Cape Horn had set in with good earnest. In the midst of all this, and before it became dark, we had all the studding sails to make up and stow away, and then to lay aloft and rig in all the booms, fore and aft, and coil away the tacks, sheets, and halyards. This was pretty tough work for four or five hands, in the face of a gale which almost took us off the yards, and with ropes so stiff with ice that it was almost impossible to bend them. I was nearly half an hour out on the end of the foreyard, trying to coil away and stop down the topmost studding sole tack and lower halyards. It was after dark when we got through, and we were not a little pleased to hear four bells struck, which sent us below for two hours and gave us each a pot of hot tea with our cold beef and bread, and, what was better yet, a suit of thick, dry clothing, fitted for the weather, in place of our thin clothes, which were wet through and now frozen stiff.' 